There are some issues so foundational to our humanity, both in its essence and in our brokenness, that we don't need to teach concepts to our children. You've heard me talk about this before, but you don't need to teach your children how to be selfish. They, they, we know that intuitively. Um, this idea of um, having things that belong to me and responsible, like that's my thing, that responsibility piece isn't fundamentally a wrong thing, but it goes off the rails with this word that kids love to use, which is mine. Just think about it for a moment. How did a kid ever learn the word mine? I mean, it's not like, I mean, a parent would tell their kids, say dada, say mama. It's not like we're coaching them, say mine, say mine. Like we don't do that. Kids just pick it up in, intuitively. Or um, not just this idea of mine, but I do it. I do it. it it's a good thing. We, we want kids to learn responsibility, right? You don't want a 30-year-old asking his mom to tie his shoes for him, right? You, you, you want a person to be independent, to be on their own. And yet how many times parents have you experienced it? And even growing up, you probably remember doing this, that you wanted to do it on your own. Not a bad thing, but it gets off the rails. So there are things in life that are inherently not bad, being responsible, that's a good thing. I've often thought at what age does it click in the mind of a young man that a garden hose should be wrapped up after you use it? When does that transfer happen? When he owns it? Because like when I was in high school, I was like, it's good enough. And then when I owned it, I was like, no, it needs to be wrapped up. And even now I'm that dad, like, could you wrap up the hose please? Like when does that ownership happen? It's not a bad thing unless it becomes, that's my hose. That's a bad thing. So there's lots of things like that in life. Here's another one. It's not fair. Oh, how much parental energy is spent dealing with this issue. It's not fair. How many times have you heard that protest from your kids? A few weeks ago, we were away together as a family. We were riding in an elevator, and I was commenting to one of my adult sons that how hard it was growing up with three boys to navigate the competition between who got the seminal opportunity to push the button on the elevator. <laughs> the, the number of fights that happen about the honor, the adulthood of being able to push a button. It was crazy, we had actually had to develop a schedule. No, now it's your turn. No, he had it last time. I'm like, oh, it's a button. Mom, just you do it. I mean, right, you know? I mean, you know these things. This is how this rolls. This fairness thing, it's hard. And yet at some level, fairness is really important. Pushing buttons on an elevator is one thing, but I mean, for real, when you've been treated unfairly, when you've been judged prematurely, when you've been evaluated unjustly, I mean, it's really painful. And it's not just painful, it's wrong. And when we think about the world in which we live with all of the brokenness of sin that's just inherent in our world and our culture, you're gonna see a wide variety of unfairness in our society. In fact, that's one of the reasons why human beings develop things, systems, policies, governments in order to try and mitigate against this natural unfairness that we're gonna to bring to the table if things don't control us as humans. So we have systems of government, we have courts, we have laws, we have procedures, we have policies. 
In my family, as it related to the elevator, we had a policy that we developed to try and give some lanes to run in that could help moderate our behavior of our children. So you'd expect it at some level because the world is so broken, like it's just part of the reality of the fall. But what happens when that becomes a part of the church? I mean, you'd hope, you'd hope, right? That people who have an understanding of the gospel and a robust theological vision, who understand, like I said last week, who they are and what's important, people who know God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life, that those people who have been so captured by God's grace would have an understanding of what it means to consider others more important than themselves and who could see the issue of fairness through a gospel-saturated lens. But sadly, if we're honest, that isn't always the case. The opening lines of James, James chapter two address some of the most pointed and profound statements regarding the problem of partiality. Over the next two weeks, we're going to explore these seven verses in order to understand how to think about partiality from a biblical framework. You see, when unfairness or partiality happens in the confines of the church, it's a different issue because we should know who we are, we should know what's important. So it's one thing when it happens in the world, it's another when it happens in the church. In God's providence, we are tackling this text on both Sanctity of Life Sunday and the Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Both issues are linked to what it means to be an image bearer and are linked to the issue of injustice. Both, both have issues of partiality that are in the mix. Let me acknowledge, before I get into the sermon, that this text lands in a context, a context within our culture, a context within evangelicalism, and a context even within our own church. Several months ago, I mentioned a lens that I would encourage you to think about the issues that are rolling around in our culture today, and to ask yourself, do I think about issues primarily as political, as cultural or theological. In many respects, all issues are political, cultural, and theological. But the issue is the order in which you approach them, and it really matters. I would suggest to you that for some of us, those things are not in the right order. We are emotionally thinking about things, not from a theological standpoint, but instead from a political or a cultural standpoint, and then trying to do theology after we've already done our politics or our culture. I mean, we all do that at some level. It's just important to be self-aware and to ask yourself, what's my first step? And then you can address the cultural and political issues, but I would suggest to you to think theologically is really important. Last week, I addressed the issue of Christian nationalism, and I was not attempting to address a political issue or a cultural issue, per se. Primarily, my concern is a theological one. What is the role of Christian symbols and sayings in the public square? So what I'm gonna try and do in these two messages is to major in the theological lane. That's my area of calling, that's where my training is, that's whatever area of expertise I have, which isn't a lot, that's just about it. I'm gonna try and stay in my lane, also realizing that 
part of staying in my lane is also making applications carefully in the context of culture, especially. I'm gonna do my best to stay out of the political arena, although we may have different definitions as to what is the political arena. Realizing that sometimes that's even kind of hard to discern. So that's what I'm gonna try and do over the next two weeks and would ask that you'd pray that this text would be helpful to you and that I'd be faithful to it. I would ask that you would do something and that is, could you resist the urge to take this topic and immediately jump to, well, what about them? Or what about that group? Or what about this way that I'm treated unfairly? Or what about when people are partial to me? That may be true and that's a legitimate question. Could I just encourage you to ask that as the second question? Could I encourage you that the better way I think to approach this is to first ask, where might I be guilty of partiality? And then be able to answer those other questions. But I think if you get that question right first, it helps to change the conversation and even change the application of what is here in the text. So the book of James is candid and it's clear. It's interesting that it's written to a group of people who are experiencing hardship. And chapter one was designed to help people embrace steadfast joy in the midst of that, kind of helping them to think correctly about what their attitude needs to be like. And in chapters two and three, we're going to see James's attempts to merge both faith and works and show us how those two things go together, how they're linked. That if the gospel, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life, like if that's like straight up true, then that should impact how Christians live. And one of the ways that true gospel understanding should affect your life is how you think about the issue of partiality. So over the next two weeks, we're gonna answer these four questions, two this week, two next week. So if you're the person who likes everything buttoned up in a sermon, you're not gonna like this one. Sorry. We're gonna answer four questions. What is partiality? When is it sinful? What does partiality look like? And how do we address it? I wanna remind you that sometimes in your spiritual development, it's not that you have better answers or better conclusions, but you have better questions. And I wanna encourage you that there's some things I'm gonna help you, I think, to more definitively understand today. There's also things that I'm going just to leave hanging for you to think about and pray about. And I hope you'll embrace that tension, that you can be mature enough to not have to have me button everything up. And realize that the Holy Spirit's been given to you to work through some of the tensions that are gonna remain even on this text. So first, let's go with an overview. So what is this about exegetically? A couple things. First, notice that James starts and calls them brothers. This is the kind of language that we've seen him use before, particularly when he's dealing with pretty pointed issues. If you look at chapter one, verse two, and six, and 19, you'll see that he uses this language. And then what he does in verse one is he lays out the principle really clearly. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So what he does is he says, don't be partial as you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So can I just be clear that what we're talking about here is a gospel implication issue. James chapter two isn't explicitly about the gospel in terms of people coming to faith in Christ, but it is about what the kind of people who believe in the gospel, how they should live. So there are gospel implications. Please don't disregard James chapter two 
by saying, well, just talk about the gospel. It's all we need is the gospel. True, but in the same way that we need to talk about morality and how we think about how we live as a validation of the gospel, so too in James chapter two, James says this is what it means. This issue is something to think about as it relates to what the gospel is. He then gets specific. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, you could assume with that kind of language, we're talking about a rich man, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So James sets up this illustration. He talks about the concept of partiality and then he illustrates it with this one particular cultural example. And surely James means more than this, but this is the one in particular for a number of reasons that he identifies. Verse three, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man stand over there or sit at my feet, so notice the distinction that's being made. Verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And obviously this is a bad distinction that is being made. And become judges with evil thoughts. Oh, there it is. So there's a distinction that shows the evil thoughts that are underneath. Next, he says, listen, my brothers, verse five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So he's, he's saying, look, you're, you're making an incorrect assessment here. You're assessing the value of the poor man outside of how God thinks of him. And so he's bringing in divine counsel into this moment. Verse six, you have dishonored the poor man, meaning you've judged him by a wrong standard. You've assessed him to be less valuable than how God sees him. That's the issue. And then he says, are, you, are not the rich the ones who oppose you and the ones who drag you into court? Now, here he brings in sort of a cultural issue to say, circumstantially, this doesn't make sense because these are the ones who are actually oppressing you, but you're trying to honor them. So there's a theological issue and a cultural issue. Verse seven, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So James is identifying here that their previous judgment about the value of the rich man was not only misguided spiritually, but also that it was unwise practically. So remember, James is talking about, or talking to rather, people who are experiencing hardship. Why does he say this? Here's why, just note this, this is really important. Church hardship tends to intensify self-protection. Think of that. Hardship tends to intensify self-protection. So when things get hard, our tendency as human beings, we've always done this, we tend to be most interested, most passionate, most angry about the things that would violate our own self-protection. That's where we go. It's what we do. Sometimes it's not a bad thing to do, but if it gets off the rails, it can be a terrible thing. In this context, James is identifying that partiality tends to grow when self-interest is rising. So partiality tends to grow when self-interest is rising. Show me a culture where self-interest is going up and I'll show you a culture where partiality is also going up. And that's true not just in our day and age, that's been true in every day and age. So with that, let's tackle the first two questions. First, what is partiality? It's important to start with a definition so we understand what we're talking about and then we'll expand it to look at the context. 
In James chapter two and verse one, we see that he says, show no partiality. What does that word mean? Well, NIV and the Christian Standard Bible translate it as favoritism. So you can think of partiality, just in simple terms, as favoritism. You could think of it as being a respecter of persons. Now that raises an issue that we'll come back to since sometimes being a respecter of persons is not sinful at all. In fact, it's actually the right thing to do. It's actually honorable. But we'll come back to that in a moment. The definition in the original language means literally to receive the face. And it means that we make external judgments and external evaluations based upon our perception. So to receive the face means that I see someone and I make a judgment, I make a decision. And in this context, it carries the idea of favoring one group over another. In James chapter two, it's favoring a rich man over a poor man. That's why James uses this illustration. The man comes into the church and apparently he's wearing clothing Gold ring, fancy clothes, and those clothes aren't just clothes. Those clothes represent something else. It causes people to pay attention to him, not just because of his clothes and his ring, but because of what that clothing and that ring means. And underneath all of this, they're neglecting the poor man in the effect is to make a distinction with evil thoughts, according to verse four. So you could think of this as a couple other words, words like bias or words like prejudice. They all relate to the idea of partiality. So let me give you my definition. Partiality is this. It makes unfair judgments and takes unjust actions. So it's both the judgment and the action that's related to partiality. Partiality relates to what I think, what I evaluate, what I determine, and then also what I do. In James 2, he illustrates these unjust actions by seating the poor man on the floor. He's determined that the rich man is of more value, and the reason he's determined that is because the rich man gives, has the potential to give him what he wants. His self-interest, his self-protection favors the rich man. I mean, if these people are persecuted and they're under hardship, then the possibility of a rich man coming into their midst, no doubt they could have thought, look, a wealthy man, Finally, somebody in the upper echelon who's on our side, if this person could simply write us a check, our suffering would be abated. The poor man has nothing to offer like that. So the issue is not just the man's wealth. The issue is what the man's wealth could do for those who embrace partiality. And so doing, they dishonor the poor man, despite the fact that it was common for in James's day, the rich to oppress the poor. Doug Moo, in his commentary on James, helps us to understand this, that at the time, there was this famine in Jerusalem, and the people who James is writing to are those marked by a socioeconomic class that were more poor than others. Moo writes this, the strongly marked socioeconomic class distinction presupposed in James corresponds closely to what we know of the conditions in the first century. A small group of wealthy landowners and merchants accumulated more and more power, while large numbers of people were forced from their land and grew even poorer. And most of James's readers probably belonged to this class of poor agricultural laborers. So now, 
What's happening in this text, understand, is that James is taking a theological concept of partiality and he's applying it to a cultural framework. Please understand that you always have to do that. You can't go cultural to theological, but you must go theological to cultural, otherwise there's no application of the text. Every church, every Christian in every generation has to figure out, in our culture, in our society, what does partiality look like? If you take partiality and go to another part of the world, it is a different layer, a different nuance, a different lingo. All cultures have partiality in them. It's not germane to any nation, to any particular people group. We have always struggled with it because human beings are partial. Why? Because we love ourselves. And when we are afraid, partiality increases. Now, in the Old Testament, we find the same concept. The Hebrew word means to lift the face of another. The the idea would be a judge who's deciding and then he sees the face of people who are in the courtroom or he sees the people who are bringing a suit against one another and partiality would be to decide for the one whose face he sees and favors. This is why in uh, 2 Chronicles 19, the Bible says this, He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So partiality then is a perversion of justice. It negatively affects decisions in a way that is out of step with God's standard for justice and righteousness. So again, partiality makes unfair judgments, what I see, and then takes unjust actions. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon, which is this, some of you have already started to jump to implications in your mind, third and fourth step. Wait a minute, what's, what about this? Let me again encourage you. What I'm asking you to do is to ask yourself, in what areas and in what places am I more inclined to be guilty of partiality? Some of you in the back of your minds are thinking, no, no, I'm always fair in my judgments. Come on. Really? Always fair? The the, the brokenness of our humanity is such that our perceptions are biased for any number of reasons. We make snap judgments. Sometimes it's because of pain in our past or because of things that have happened to us. Other times because of the place in which we grew up or the kind of home that we were in or because of our understanding of the world. Like our brokenness and our sinfulness has affected our judgment in so many ways. And all of us, all of us are tempted to make unfair judgments that can result in unjust actions. So that's the problem of partiality. That's what it is. So when is partiality sinful? Here's the second question. By by even asking that question, it assumes that there's some partiality that isn't sinful. And I'm gonna show you that that's in fact true. So let's start with what is sinful partiality. First and foremost, sinful partiality is selfish. In verse four, we see that James says, you've made distinctions among yourselves and have become judges with evil thoughts. No doubt these evil thoughts were not just about rich man and poor man in context for the fact that they were rich and poor, but it was what the rich man or the poor man could do for them. 
And as a result, they, they esteemed the rich man as more valuable than the poor man. And as a result, partiality simply is loving ourselves more than others. Partiality is awful, not just because it treats people unfairly, but it treats people unfairly in order for us to get what we want. The desirability of his wealth and the implications of his wealth are what motivate this partiality. That's true for our, all partiality. Underneath partiality is a passion for something that we desire, control, power, authority. It's a thing that gives us, it's a tool that gives us what we want. Secondly, sinful partiality violates biblical justice. We already mentioned this before, but partiality is, is, is a violation of a divine standard of what's right and wrong. In fact, this is so important that in the Old Testament, there was even warnings, not just about wealthy men and poor men, but about being partial to the poor in judgment. I mean, this, this cuts both ways. You can't be partial to the rich man, but you also can't be partial to the poor man. Take, for instance, Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So realize this is a two-way street. A judge couldn't say, well, because he is poor, we're gonna honor, uh, we're gonna rule in favor of him. No, from a biblical standard, what is right and what is wrong, that needs to be the sole standard of what is involved. So people are to be treated in a way that's connected to a divine standard of what is true. This is why in Romans chapter two, the apostle Paul uses this argument to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, all of us are gonna be held accountable before God for our sins because with God there is no partiality. A Jew can't say, well, I'm a Jew, or a Gentile can say, well, I'm a Gentile. God says, hmm, it doesn't matter. Romans two, six and 11, also Colossians three and verse five. Then Paul even uses this as an argument to moderate behavior of masters with their servants. If masters were treating their servants unfairly or threatening them, Paul warned them saying that he who is both their master and yours who is in heaven, there is no partiality with him. So masters can't stand before God and say, but I was in charge, I had authority. Mm -mm. Doesn't matter, your state in life doesn't rule out divine justice. So sinful partiality then violates divine justice. Now third, we need to acknowledge that sinful partiality has to be distinguished between honor and graciousness. There's some who would take the issue of partiality and they just begin applying it everywhere as if the ultimate standard of everything is that everything always must be fair. And you do that and you have a lot of problems. For instance, Leviticus 19.32 says that when you come in the presence of an old man, you're to honor the face of that old man and stand up. A young man can't say, that's partiality. You should stand when I'm here. No. Honoring an older man is appropriate. Or Leviticus 19 says that those who have fields should leave the outer rims of their fields unharvested for the poor and the sojourner. That's Leviticus 19 and verse nine. But the rich couldn't appeal and say, ha, that's not fair. If you're gonna have the lines on the outside of the field available for the poor, it's gotta be available for everybody or that's partiality. No, that's not partiality, that's called generosity. 
Or in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, Paul says that the Gentiles should receive the gospel because they are part of God's people, that God shows no partiality. So it's important to distinguish between honor, respect, appropriate kindness, and gospel identity. For, for example, it's fully appropriate to treat guests with unusual hospitality. If you have guests over to your home and you make a fancy meal for them and bring out the nice china and pour out some nice grape juice or maybe you don't bring pop out and you bring Diet Coke out, your kids should not appeal and say, we are partial to visitors in this house. We never get Diet Coke in our place. We never, wait, this is unbelievable. Mac and cheese last night, we got filet mignon just because they're guests. They're guests, it's what you do. Or if my wife calls me and I'm in a meeting, I see it and I say, excuse me, I need to pick up this phone up. Our staff should not appeal and say, oh, he's so partial to his wife. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I think that's fully appropriate. So you see somebody who walks in the door, one person smiling, another has tears flowing down their face. We ought to walk quickly to the person with tears. Not being partial, but the fact of the matter is, is different contexts require different responses. Being sure, for instance, that outsiders feel loved, it's not partiality, it's called being kind. So sinful partiality makes unfair judgments and makes, it takes rather unjust actions. It, it succumbs, this is really important, it's, it succumbs to the promise of power and it selfishly attempts to gain something by treating people differently. So in its essence, partiality uses divisions in order to get what we want. That's been true since the beginning of time. It's true today and it cuts across all cultures and all groups. And again, I'm asking you to think through, in your life, where does that kind of partiality appear? Some of you like sermons that are really nicely buttoned up. You're not going to like this one. I'm gonna give you two applications, and then we'll conclude further next week. First, I'm pleading with you to consider where partiality might be potentially tempting or problematic in your life. In other words, which groups of people or which identity markers cause you to more likely stumble with partiality? Still unclear? Ask yourself this, what enamors you? Is it fame? Famous person walks in? Is it power? Is it wealth? Could also be intelligence? Could be social status? Could be ethnicity? Where, where are you inclined to be a respecter of persons? Or, or maybe think of it the other direction. What groups of people are you inclined to judge quickly? To write off? To get angry at? You see somebody with a bumper sticker and it has something on it and you make a snap judgment. They're what's wrong with the world. And you don't even know them. What... Which issues cause you to harbor bitterness rapidly? Second question. When you think of that lens of theology, culture, and politics, can I just ask you to ask yourself, 
which of those three are dominant at present in your life? In other words, which is the first step that you take? And to what extent is the gospel, your identity, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life, to what extent is that the first step through which you see life? Is your first step theological, who you are and what's important? Or right now, is your first step, the thing that makes you most mad, the thing you talk about the most, the thing that gets you the most upset is either cultural or political? Not that those things can be talked about, but if they're more important than the theological lens, then that's gonna create some challenges. I'm not saying those issues aren't important, but what I am saying is we need to get them in the right order of importance. And if you get them in the right order of importance, then you at least have a shot at being able to see the issue of fairness more clearly. I'll give you an illustration. One of the reasons that I love basketball and I love my boys in particular playing basketball is that it bumps their souls and things come out. It's a great teaching moment. And so imagine a scenario, this is all theoretical of course, that in the midst of a game with the arch rivals, they're cheating in how they play. Fouls under the table and the ref won't call it. And imagine one of my sons gets called by a ref and it's a bad call and he gets mad and he yells at the ref, this didn't happen. It didn't. And he gets a technical foul. The conversation in the car ride home is really important. Because if I go down a path and say, yeah, that team in there, a bunch of cheaters, refs, they're awful, I inflame the inherent unfairness within him and I end up helping him understand improperly what's really important. Or it's a teaching moment for me to remind him, when you go on that court, you're a follower of Jesus and it doesn't matter who the team is or how bad the ref is, at the end of the day, you are commanded to honor Christ because Jesus is more important than a basketball or bad refing or the competition that you're playing against. Right? That's, I trust that you would agree with that. You said that to your kids, right? That's a moment where you got to jump on that and say, hey, 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 hey. They may have been cheating. That may have been a bad call. But straight up, we're followers of Jesus. We're not going to do that. The issue is the order of importance, and that order really, really matters. And so when we think about issues of fairness and partiality, those orders are critical. It's an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to live out the gospel in a way that shows our faith works. It works, and it works when it really matters. And next week, we'll cover the second, the third, and fourth point of where might we see partiality and what in the world do we do about it? Lord, would you help us to apply the Bible today to our lives such that we would feel the powerfully hopeful reality of the Spirit identifying, here's what you need to think about. Would you help us to see clearly where this issue of partiality can make its way into our lives? Would you grant us faith and repentance where needed? And God, would you help us to be a people marked by the gospel who live it out in beautifully, beautifully transparent and powerful ways. We pray this in Jesus' name.